Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a unique opportunity to listen to one of the most provocative and clear minds on the issue of Darwinism and science. Dr. David Berlinski, who was on this program about two and a half years ago for his great book, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and His Scientific Pretensions, Dr. Belinsky was on the program back, I think it was November of 2019, and uh, we had a great conversation. And I just learned this week from my friends at the Discovery Institute that Dr. Belinsky was going to be in the United States this week, and he is. So I wanted to take the opportunity to do this bonus broadcast to bring Dr. Belinsky to you because we had a great conversation two and a half years ago. We're continue it today. For those of you that don't know, Dr. Belinsky is an author, he's a thinker, he's a professor. He's, self, he's a self-described secular Jew who, with wit and elegance, dismantles the assumptions and assertions of Darwinists and other atheistic materialists in his interviews and in his books. He's, had, he's got his PhD from Princeton. He's taught at Stanford. He's taught at Rutgers. He's part of the Discovery Institute with our friends up there in Seattle, but he lives in Paris and uh, he lives just steps away from Notre Dame. And so I want to start where we started last time. Uh, Dr. Belinsky, two and a half years ago, we started talking about what happened to the cathedral there. And it had just had that fire two and a half years ago. Give us an update on the progress. What's happening there now, sir? Well, you, you've got to understand, I don't have access to the site. The entire site is sealed off. <clears throat> but I do speak from time to time with some of the people who are working on the site. And they, they are making a lot of progress. Um, for a year after the fire, the deep fear was that so much water had seeped into the stones that the structure might prove to be unstable and collapse. Evidently, that, that, that particular worry has now been put to rest. The structure is stable. It will be saved. And they're, they're undertaking extremely painstaking work of restoration right now. They have uh, decided in a certain way that they're going to restore the, the cathedral exactly as it was before. But the interior may well be changed to accommodate uh, the endless imperatives of diversity and inclusion. That is to say, uh, some part of the cathedral will no longer be a monumental Catholic edifice, but it will be ecumenical. Uh, with the uh, Christian faith exhibited, but not made the focal point of worship in the cathedral. As far as I That's can tell, I was... there'll, there'll be panels about Buddhism, about Hinduism, about Islam. Uh, everybody will be welcome uh, to share this uh, rather vulgar celebration of interfaith uh, sentiments. But that, that remains up for, for grabs right now. It's not, nothing has been completely clear. At least they didn't go forward with the plans to put a swimming pool on the roof, which were very, those plans were ardently advocated by a group of architects. Nothing like a swimming pool on the top of Notre Dame. 
You're shaking your head in disbelief. I, I, I'm not making that up. No, I remember you, you mentioned that about two and a half years ago. And yeah. uh, we also talked about the fact that uh, this idea that this would be an ecumenical celebration of all faiths kind of mirrors or at least is a metaphor for what's happened in Europe. Uh, that it's now this big combination of pluralistic ideas or the idea that every faith leads to God, that kind of thing. Uh, excuse me for interrupting you. I don't think the French are particularly enthusiastic about that degree of ecumenical uh, generosity. The, the, the government's plans to make this an interfaith center have come under a very fierce attack from all over the place. It's not just the, the ardent French Catholics, but a lot of people are saying, well, look, this was a great Catholic monument. It should remain a great Catholic monument. Mm -hmm. Not a house of worship, but a Catholic house of worship. And those sentiments are not, not trivial in France. I mean, they, they count for a great deal. But I can't tell you uh, with any assurance, based on what I know just from talking to, to people who are working on the site, what the ultimate fate of that uh, magnificent structure will be. Now, Dr. Belinsky, you have a new book, relatively new, came out end of 2019 called Human Nature. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that in addition to The Devil's Delusion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just so you know, The Devil's Delusion was a book written, I believe, in about 2008. And in my view, it's one of the best and one of the most enjoyable books to read on the topic because uh, Dr. Belinsky is very elegant and he's very sarcastic, which I like because I'm originally from New Jersey. So you're going to love reading The Devil's Delusion. And even though it's 2008, trust me, this book is evergreen. Uh, you're going to enjoy it. And uh, what I want to ask Dr. Belinsky, just briefly, I, I, I seem to remember when that book came out and it took off up the charts, there was some question as to whether or not your publisher would bring out a second edition or a reprinting. Why, why was there a, a bit of a controversy over that? I never knew. I never knew. The book was supposed to be issued in um, a print run of 40,000 copies. <clears throat> At the very last moment, they knocked that back down to 5,000 copies. And uh, mm. of course, like every injured author, I made a big fuss about it. I never got a clear answer why they decided to do that. And it sold out very quickly. It did very well commercially for the publisher, uh, but they, they had no interest in reprinting it. And I took it to another house, which printed it in paperback, and it's continuing to sell well. So a lot of that is simply opaque. I don't, I, you know, you go to a publisher, a huge publisher, and you ask them for an accounting, you'll never get anywhere. We both know mm. that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know that some uh, Darwinists were upset because you skewer them quite, uh, quite well in The Devil's Delusion. And then the new book called Human Nature, uh, the title of the book Human Nature, uh, what, is the, what is the essence of this book? Why is it called Human Nature, Dr. Belinsky? Well, it should really be a question, human nature, question mark. And... Uh, mm. I think it's a question that, that's really one of those uh, remarkably topical questions. Is there such a thing as human nature? Now, we would never ask that about another species. If you're looking at a lion, it would never mm -hmm. occur to you to say, is there such a thing as a lion's nature? Obviously, a lion is a lion. It goes out, and if it's not killing zebras, it's sleeping in the shade. Uh, that's, that's a lion's nature. Uh, 
But human beings are considerably more complex and more interesting, at least to other human beings. And, uh, oh, for thousands of years it was taken for granted that there are essential aspects of human nature, that is, things that belong to humanity as necessary properties, without which an individual would not be a human being. It would be a lion or a zebra or a turtle or a rock or a table. And that... Uh, that uh, almost trivial idea, very intuitive, has come under attack. It's certainly come under attack oh, over the last 50 years. Mm. After all, from a Darwinian point of view, the idea of an essential human nature doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What Darwinian theory predicts is an ever-shifting, flowing, mutating stream of life uh, with organisms acquiring certain properties at certain times, losing other properties at other times. It doesn't really make sense from a Darwinian point of view to say, is there something essential without which this individual would not belong, would not be, would not exhibit the properties of being a human being? And an affirmative answer to that question, as I'm prepared to tentatively offer, puts definite limits on one of the major assumptions, I think, of social and moral and sexual life today, that is the infinite plasticity of an individual. I mean, we all cherish the idea, in one way or another, that there are no limits. The idea of a limit, whether it's a limit to our ambitions, a limit to our life, a limit to our desires, is in some way inhibiting. We all acknowledge that. This is the uh, ancestral childhood voice speaking. Children do not like the idea, children say up to the age of two or three, of being restrained. Mm -hmm. Obviously not. And they cannot see why there should be a limit to the satisfaction of their infantile desires. And when they are restrained, the result is very often infantile rage. And this is exactly what we see uh, as common discourse in the West today. Let me take that back. I didn't mean to be quite so uh, broad speaking of the West. It certainly seems to be true of the United States and parts of Western Europe. What's taking place in Eastern and Central Europe is, I think, another story and one with which I'm not very well uh, acquainted. But certainly to take the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia as test cases, what we do see everywhere we look is a kind of infantile rage at the merest suggestion that human life might be bounded by inflexible and irrefrangible limits. That's a, a relatively new uh, feature of contemporary discourse. If you went to the 19th century, or the early part of the 20th century, the idea that there are fixed limits, part of the essential nature of the human being, would seem self-evident. Of course there are. Human beings have a certain lifespan. Human beings have a certain nature. Human beings have certain kinds of interests, but not other kinds of interests. Human beings have very specific properties that set them apart from every other part of the animal or the plant kingdom. Human beings possess a language. Human beings have an intricate, complex, and poorly understood moral system. And these are necessary features. We can't do without them. And until maybe yesterday afternoon at 5 o'clock, the gender division would be included among those Mm -hmm. Necessary mm -hmm. features. Human beings are divided into two, two uh, 
perpetually warring uh, classes, men and women. And, uh, the idea that there is a war between them, that they have different instincts, different tendencies, different desires, different conditions of satisfaction would, uh, would appear just self-evident. James Thurber, for example, in the 1950s wrote a wonderful book of cartoons which he entitled The War Between Men and Women. Of course, there's some tongue-in-cheek in that because even though it's a war, the enemies are beloved. But nonetheless, there's a certain amount of wisdom, very distinct division in human life between men and women. As I said, that was common wisdom until roughly 5.30 yesterday. Now it is severely placed in doubt. What is the worldview, Dr. Belinsky, that has given rise to this idea that human nature is virtually infinitely plastic? Where does that come from, you think? Well, a great many things that seem preposterous or silly or funny or ridiculous, uh, if you trace the filament back far enough, you see something very solid, which is not to justify the preposterous, the silly, or the frivolous. For example, it turns out to be very difficult to say what an essential property really is. That is, the apparatus of modal logic and its distinctions is by no means crystal clear. Look, you take a, this is a famous example from the 1950s. You describe a man as a bicycle rider, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, he's necessarily two-legged. You describe him as a mathematician, and he's necessarily rational. Mm -hmm. But one and the same person, one and the same person, a particular individual, which of those features does he have necessarily? Mm. Yeah, he's rational. Um, you describe a man you, as... You, yeah, I was going to say, you can, you can be an amputee and still be a human being. That's right. you're a rational yeah. being. Yeah. But if you describe yeah. him as a bicycle rider, having two legs yeah. is necessary. If you describe mm -hmm. him as an amputee, it's not necessary. So where right. does the necessity arise? It simply arises mm -hmm. a, matter of, uh, a matter pertaining to the way we describe events. If I describe mm -hmm. a man as the father of Jim Jones, for example, mm -hmm. well, the father of Jim Jones is necessarily a man. If I, I describe him as the author of Gulliver's Travels, he's not necessarily a man. Well, which is it? Is he necessarily a man or not necessarily a man? Mm. These go back to the 1940s and 1950s discussions in analytic philosophy and modal logic. And to a certain extent, we've understood it better. But the fact remains is we do not really know whether necessity arises in the world, real necessity, as a function of the way the world is described or the function of the way the world really is. That is the result of tracing the filament of frivolity back to its source in philosophy. And that is why even the most absurd of contemporary brouhaha's, um, you always find some hard kernel of indigestible analysis all the way back. Same thing is true of, of various discussions of truth. It turns out to be just very hard to get clear about what it means to say of a proposition or a sentence, well, it's true or it's false. And there are, there are powerful theorems in, in logic which place limits on what we can, we can really say. 
what we could say in terms of what's commonly called disquotation. Snow is white is true. Now it is. Snow is white. If and only if snow is white. That is, the sentence is true. The dog is yellow. The sentence is true. And here's the condition. Well, it's true if snow is white. That doesn't tell us a whole, a whole lot about the degree to which a true sentence corresponds or denotes or designate, designates something in the real world. Well, too bad. It seems that uh, we can't do that. Yeah, if, I think if we're locked in the Kantian world that you, you can't know the real world to make it easy because, you know, we have this phenomenon getting to, uh, or the noumena getting to our, our, our minds and then the mind orienting the noumena in such a way that the, uh, I, I can't really know the real world. Yeah, then you are locked in agnosticism. But I take, I take, I take Aristotle and Aquinas's view as correct that we, we can know the thing in itself Kant spoke of a thing in its, the things in themselves, and it's a useful fiction. But if they are inaccessible, it's hard to see what role they're playing in our, uh, our struggles. It's like saying... Right, but I think you're right. If, if, if we're buying into Kant, then we get to this idea that we can't really know human nature, and maybe human nature then is plastic to the point that uh, we have how many genders now? I don't know. It seems to me, though, Dr. Belinsky, that transgenderism would presuppose fixed genders, because if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea of what a man is and some idea of what a woman is to even know the difference, right? Look, the, 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 whole, the whole issue is so nutty, the way it's presented, <laughs> that's, that that's sure. adopting a degree of <laughs> scrupulosity that I think the discussion doesn't merit. Um, <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, whether we believe in the thing in itself or not. Mm -hmm. uh, the physical sciences have simply made Kantian distinctions irrelevant because they're the repository of extremely rich, powerful theories that seem to work. Why they work, whether they access the physical world without human participation and so the thing in itself. These are discussions that do not for a minute impede the progress of the physical sciences. It's certainly true that the world the physical sciences seem to reveal is not the world we inhabit. Well, it's not the, that's not the end of anything. I mean, physical sciences talk about quanta, they talk about waves of probability, they talk about deformations of space and time. We don't happen to live in that kind of world. We have no access to it except by means of powerful mathematical theories. Mm -hmm. That's just a, a very interesting fact. But when we come to the uh, proliferation of gender identities, numbering now in the thousands, I'm sure, mm. and uh, easily inscribed on a passport, according to what I heard yesterday on U.S. television, <clears throat> I don't think we have to appeal to Kant, the thing in itself, or the ultimate source of this idea of plasticity. It is far more satisfying just to say this is nuts and not defend it. <laughs> It's just nothing. And we all knew well, that before 5.30 yesterday afternoon. There's nothing we to did, we, what we knew yesterday has become false today. Mm -hmm. I mean, some uh, hairy monster climbs out of the swimming pool six foot six after soundly thrashing a group of women in the freestyle competition. He looks to everyone like a man and he's participating in a woman's sport. No fair. That seems obvious. It just seems, seems obvious. obvious.
But who was it? Was it Orwell who said that telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act? So you just committed yeah, a revolutionary act. Orwell did say that. Even more interesting is um, an old, old essay by an English philosopher, H.A. Pritchard, called Does Moral Philosophy Rest on a Mistake? And he points out that many moral judgments that we make are far more persuasive than any of the premises we might invoke to justify them. And I think mm -hmm. gender identity is one. I mean, look, we've known for 10,000 years, 20,000 years, the chimpanzees know this, that mammalian species are generally divided into two dimorphic groups with completely mm -hmm. different agendas, properties, natures, aptitudes, tendencies. We know that. Uh, and then somebody who says, no, I can, I can switch over the only response is, if you have that kind of power, could you also use it to become, say, a dolphin or a seagoing <laughs> turtle? And if you can't, why do you assume you have that power with respect to sexual identity? Could you mm -hmm. grow 10 times taller simply as a wish? Could you reverse your chronological age by 40 years simply because you believe you're 40 years younger than you really are? If not, then there are some limitations you do respect. You don't respect those. Well, at least you respect 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? And if you say 2 plus 2 is not necessarily 4, there's no possibility of rational discourse anymore. And if there's no possibility of rational discourse, all I can do is hit you over the head if you interfere. <laughs> That's racist, Dr. Berlinski. Math is now racist. I don't know if you've heard that. I've but, always yeah, believed it's, that. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's as if people who get plastic surgery are, are 20 years younger. No, they just appear maybe 20 years younger. So well, let, let me true. ask you some things. Let me ask some things about Darwinism, because that's what your books deal in. And you have another book. In addition to The Devil's Delusion, you have The Deniable Darwin. And then, of course, the brand new book, Human Nature, brand new, a couple of years old. Um Let's talk about belief in, belief in God being rational. Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? No, that's a good question. You mean that the concept is contradictory? Well, I know the atheists are often saying you're irrational for believing in God. My view is you're irrational for believing that reason itself came from matter without any mind. No, no, no. no. Let, let's go back to the interesting question. Um, has okay. anyone provided a proof or at least a good argument that God does not exist because, and the only argument that, that comes readily to mind would be that God is supposed to have such and such a set of properties and these properties are inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there, there are schoolroom arguments that children engage in. If God is omnipotent, is there anything that he cannot do? I mean, could he violate the laws of mm. logic? Could he lift an impossibly large stone? I mean, th those sorts of things are not interesting. But the question that you raise is a very interesting question. When we come to assign attributes to the deity, do we have a consistency proof that all those attributes really cohere? I don't think mm. we have any such thing. So that might be a very interesting argument for a, an aspiring atheist to adopt. To try and say that God's attributes are somehow inconsistent? inconsistent. Yeah. I know some have tried to, to make that uh, claim, but it seems to me that they fail because what they do is they describe, as you just did, uh, omnipotent as 
doing anything rather than anything in accord with his nature. For example, yeah, can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, that's a category mistake. Any rock he can make, he can lift, but he can't make an infinitely big finite rock. That would be a category mistake. There's no such thing as an infinitely big finite rock. <laughs> These arguments are not sweeping me along in a, in a spasm of enthusiasm. Um, they're the sort of arguments that, that I remember from high school. Mm-hmm. Not that, that that's a demerit, but I think if we, if we were to appeal to the possibility of a structured argument to the, leading to the conclusion that God does not exist because his attributes are inconsistent, we need something a good deal more powerful. A good deal more powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a little like being in a vastly pre-Newtonian world and trying to figure out the properties of quarks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 1300, um, you have two, two uh, Cistercian monks arguing, and one says, well, there are these things called quarks, and they're confined. And the other guy says, well, I don't believe quarks are confined. Prove that quarks are confined. And of course, that's where the discussion ends, because they don't have the ancillary theory, nor the apparatus to provide the demonstration. It's a little like that, that is... The standards of theological argument, although in some places very sophisticated and others not so sophisticated, um, it would require embedding this entire discussion in, in uh, perhaps a modal logic to really figure out whether we could come up with, say, a completeness proof or a consistency proof, or even to, to show that to the extent that Theological assumptions are very much like assumptions in number theory. What we're after is impossible. We can never get a first-order theory to proclaim its own consistency if it's discussing the existence of the deity. But these are all questions that uh, I haven't studied. Uh, I haven't, you know, until well, you, you ask have that studied certain. You you have certainly in the book The Devil's Delusion pointed out that many atheists try and say that science has disproven God. Why are they wrong? Oh, sure. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> compared to the, the nuance and delicacy of, of providing a consistency proof for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, many scientists will say, uh, look, a, a man spends 50 years working on all synthetic chemistry in the laboratory, comes up reeking with uh, vile chemicals all over his hands, warts and stuff like that. And uh, of course, he's going to say, I've learned something about the nature of the universe. And... Uh, since he's very proud of his intellectual achievements, justifiably proud, I'm not for a minute suggesting otherwise, he's very proud of his intellectual achievements, he'll draw immensely erroneous conclusions about the universe from them. I mean, Richard Dawkins is an example, Christopher Hitchens is another example, he wasn't a scientist, but roughly the same kind of, uh, well, if you look at the sciences, what the sciences say is that God does not exist. Steven Weinberg, who was a great physicist, said the same thing, exactly Mm. the same thing. And uh, if you actually look at the theories, they don't say a word. Not one word. Mm. Look at quantum electrodynamics. Look at quantum field theory. Go to uh, Peskin and Schroeder. Quantum field theory as I know it doesn't say a word about the existence of the deity, nor about his inexistence. Mm. It talks about quantum fields. Mm. So the, the tendency to expostulate, to claim far more on behalf of the sciences than the sciences actually affirm, is certainly understandable. It's deep-rooted, it's natural, but it's perverse. 
at the same time. Why? Why do they make that leap? Why do they think as if understanding how the, the world works regularly tells us something about where the world came from in terms of its origin? Why do they think that, Dr. Belinsky? Because it's very easy to succumb to grandiosity. Mm. Look, if, if, if you and I had uh, set up shop in a garage, say in 1938, and in 1939 produced a working nuclear bomb, mm -hmm. you and I would probably have succumbed to a certain grandiosity. Look yeah. what we did. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. First time in all mm -hmm. of human history. Bam, the thing mm -hmm. goes off. Mm -hmm. Well, the scientific community is not immune from those desires. Mm. Why, why, why think that uh, even the greatest of great physicists are somehow uh, so encapsulated by their humility that they can't for a moment <laughs> strike a pose of omnipotence, omniscience? Of course they can. Look, if I had that mm. kind of uh, background, I'd do the same thing. Oh, in a flash. Mm. And looking, looking at your eyes, I see you'd be tempted too. Oh, yeah, we're all tempted. We're all. We're all tempted. We could get, yeah, we're all tempted. Sex, money, and power can get any of us. We could get very grandiose. So uh, why, why be astonished? This is what one would expect. One would expect an incredibly successful institution to give rise to people who are quite grandiose, not only in the sciences, but we see it everywhere. Oh, well, you certainly see it in COVID, you know, give, give somebody a little bit of power and... I'm so sorry, I missed, the, I missed a word. Oh, I've COVID, with COVID here in the United States, uh, you know... Oh, you we, mean the bug? We, we, yes, we, yeah, the, 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 the pandemic, we've had people, they get a little bit power and they get drunk with it. And uh, they... They start trying to lock down an entire society, and it doesn't work. Let me ask you about the fine-tuning, because your colleague, Stephen Meyer, over there at the Discovery Institute, he's just written The Return of the God Hypothesis a year ago, and he says, our universe is fine-tuned for the existence of life. Has science in any way explained why that would be? Why is it fine-tuned? No. That's a good answer. No. What about the multiverse? What do you do with the multiverse? Why are they bringing that up? The multiverse? Give me a break, yes. right? I mean, isn't one <laughs> of the damn things enough? We have to have an infinite number of universes. I know, I know what you're going to say. In one of those universes, I'm going to be 50 years younger and married to the young Sophia Loren. But in that another right, universe, are. I'm going to be 50 years older and married to Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> There so, you go, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't leave me very impressed as a prospect. What one could say is that the multi, multiverse seems to follow as a consequence from certain inflationary theories, which to mm -hmm. my way of thinking immediately suggests those inflationary theories are wrong. A implies B, not B, therefore not A. Simple inference. Uh, mm -hmm. rarely used, should be used far more often, uh, but inaccessible, impossible to perform any kind of experiment justifying it, often its own, uh, a, whole, a whole group of suspicious concoctions that are supposed to make the fine-tuning problem go away. Uh, I, think, I think with something like the multiverse, a kind of... Uh, 
gust of laughter isn't inappropriate. <laughs> no, for all I know, for all I know, finish up life, the entire world goes mad with grief at my passing, and I'll discover there is a multiverse. <laughs> well, those things, it's, it's logically possible. But in terms of the great physical theories, the standard model of particle physics, general relativity, this is just sheer speculation. Mm -hmm. Sheer, spe mm -hmm. sheer speculation. How, how about uh, you were part of a, a video that got almost three million plays with uh, Peter Robinson over there oh, yeah. at uh, the Hoover Institute. You, Stephen Meyer, and David Galenter, who is a... Uh, a, a Yale computer science professor, and you were talking about the mathematical problems with the theory of neo-Darwinism. Can you get? Can you just give us, you know, a, a layman's view? What is the mathematical problem that Darwinism has to get new life forms? Well, you want the big picture or a smaller picture? Just give us the big picture, and people can see the YouTube video. It's an hour long. Here, here's a smaller picture. I'll give right, you the smaller picture first and then the big picture. All right. Look, All right. you see a lot of whales out there in the ocean. You know, you take those mm -hmm. cruise ships, you see a whale jumps out of the ocean. I don't, I don't know why the whales are very eager to get out of the ocean. They're always jumping. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the prevailing doctrine is that the whales are actually mammals. They're not fish at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had their origins in a land-dwelling creature. Years ago, I described it as a small cow. That was a mistake. It's not a small cow. Maybe it looks mm -hmm. like a small cow. I have no idea what it is. Nobody else does either. And through uh, innumerable small changes, it became a whale. You know, it put its toe in the water, liked it there. Thereafter, it developed a web toe, and then it uh, flopped into the water a little more and paddled around. You can concoct any number of stories. And I have no problem with the fossil record. The fossil record seems to, to indicate a transition from a land-dwelling creature to a fully aquatic mammal. Okay. Now, years ago, I asked a question, and I've never received an answer. Well, my question was, how many changes are required to transform a cow into a whale? Mm. Let's stick with cows, huh? mm -hmm. inoffensive creatures. And I said... Back to the envelope calculation, about 50,000 changes. Certainly on the order of trans uh, transforming a, a 1948 Chevrolet into a Nautilus-class submarine. It would require a mm -hmm. lot of changes. You can't drop the Chevrolet in the ocean and hope it's going to perform. You can't mm -hmm. drop a cow in the ocean and hope it's going to perform either. Right. Um, one of the interesting features of this discussion, a lot of interesting features. People at Discovery Institute have tried to calculate whether there's enough time for the transition. One of the interesting features from my point of view is what one might call the missing parameter in paleontology. The missing parameter is a precise estimate of the number of changes. If we don't mm -hmm. know how many changes are required to transform that cow into a whale, we have no way of knowing whether Random variations in natural selections are up to the job. Mm. If they're two, yeah, good. Two changes, cow becomes a whale. If they're 50,000, mm. well, wait a second. Then you have to ask, well, how long do we have for those changes to take place? 50,000 separate independent changes? Well, if you've got uh, 50 million years, maybe. If you've got 10 million years, eh, not so much. The point is there's an exquisite sensitivity 
in Darwinian thinking, which when analyzed rests on parameters, number of changes, which are never specifically addressed or very rarely specifically addressed. And that's for a very good reason. We have no idea how to count the number of changes to take a cow into a whale. Where would you start counting? The skin has to become impermeable, right? How many changes is it to change a cow's skin? I mean, the cow's got a lot of skin. Is it one change? Or does every part of the anatomy have to change simultaneously? I mean, it doesn't do a cow a whole lot of good to have a waterproof chest and a porous back. Okay, so right. the whole thing has to be waterproof, or almost waterproof. That's the small example of a mathematical problem. Is there enough time, given this unspecified parameter, to accomplish this task by random variation and natural selection? Me? I mean, I, I don't have a commitment to an answer, but it strikes me as very implausible that, yes, there's enough time. That's a small mm. problem. But you can replicate that small problem in lots of other things. For example, human language. How did that thing arise? You know, mm. We're all in possession of an incredibly rich, complicated grammar that governs what we say and governs what we hear. You, know, you understand mm -hmm. me and I understand you. It's absolutely remarkable. No other species has anything like it. Certainly not our nearest ancestors, uh, chimpanzees or apes, whatever they are, least uh, last common ancestor in the hominid line. Um, no one has really sat down and said, well, to get an organism without language so that he speaks with human competence, what has to change? And how many things have to change? And in what period of time need a change? When we actually look at the, at the history of human beings, the changes that we seem to see, now we're, we're performing an inference based on, say, rock paintings and the explosion of creativity 100, 150,000 years ago, seem to indicate that language emerged very, very quickly. Blink mm. of an eye. Well, again, you have the exact same problem. Can you provide an explanation in Darwinian terms, natural variation, random variation, natural selection, given, again, this unspecified parameter of the number of changes required. And I'm not saying I have special insight into the answer. I don't know, but I wish a lot of biologists would be asking these sorts of questions. Instead well, of saying... you sure, point sure. out in your, in your writings that the, uh, the, the theory is just so vague. You, you really oh, can't man, predict anything. You can't get anywhere with it. And the mathematical problem uh, that you guys were talking about on that YouTube video with uh, Peter Robertson just seems to, or Robinson, seems to make it inescapable that you can't get there. You can't get there, you can't get there from here uh, by simply random processes. It won't work. You've got, you got too it, many it things that need to happen. It seems awfully tough, but, but bear in mind yeah. that what we both agree upon so emphatically, uh, a mm -hmm. wash of good feeling between us as we come to this agreement, we haven't demonstrated it's, it's, again, the problem. Mm -hmm. Can you demonstrate a particular right. problem? No, I am not claiming I'm in a position to demonstrate. What I am claiming is I'm in a position to ask questions that should and do require an answer. That's, that's quite different. <clears throat> um, it, it is a more modest ambition. Uh, but you ask for the larger as well as the smaller mm -hmm. mathematical objection. The larger mathematical objection is that as a result of brilliant work in molecular biology over the last half century, we have a pretty good idea of 
certain structural properties that, that organisms are, and here I, I'd like to be as flabby as possible, they're kind of governed by their DNA, by the genetic code. Mm-hmm. I know that's not quite right because there's mm-hmm. a feedback loop. The genetic code is in turn governed by the organism to a certain extent. But let's leave those chicken and egg problems aside for a moment. Well, let's leave them aside. Just leave them aside. Um, so the DNA is functioning as a kind of mishmash between an alphabet and a language and a computer program, a set of instructions, what French call renseignement. Uh, whatever it is, it's discrete and it's alphabetic. You can start fiddling with a thing as when mm-hmm. an organism undergoes or undertakes a mutation. If you look at all of the possibilities that could be generated, it's really like looking at, uh, oh, I don't know, a uh, hundred words in English, ordinary words, and saying, how many, how many sentences can you make? And the, mm-hmm. and the answer is just a staggeringly large number of sentences. Well, if you look at the DNA, the problem is exponential inflation. When you look at all mm-hmm. possibilities, that space grows dramatically. It's astronomically big. But life seems to have canalized a path through that space, and it doesn't vary all that much. The unity mm-hmm. and unification of life is far more, far more plausible than its diversity and diversification. We're not occupying all of the space of possibilities. Uh, living systems seem to be constrained in just the same way that natural languages are constrained. They follow a grammar, they follow a certain rule, a certain policy by which they they uh, achieve their degree of integrity. That's the problem of combinatorial inflation. What we can say is that something has got to rein that in. Something has got to control that. And we don't quite know what that something is. That's the large the large problem. There are too many mm-hmm. possibilities. Too many possibilities. It's very rare you'd even get one protein fold rather than a exactly. whole, the whole number you need. That's the real problem. Now, Dr. Berlinski, this interview goes so quickly. We're down to just about three minutes. Let me just ask you one thing about, uh, you, you write in both books, The Devil's Delusion and Human Nature, about how some atheists get really indignant when you ask questions about the theory of, of Darwinism. Uh, why would they get indignant? It's, it's, it's as if you're almost attacking their religious viewpoint. Are you really attacking their religion when you're asking questions about the origin of life and the origin of new life forms? Nah, I don't, I don't think it's a question of uh, people feeling religiously attacked. I think it's, it's a question of... Um, Pride in proportion to the dubiousness of the theory itself. Um, mm. I think I think you know biologists are, are are a fairly clever group, and I think there's a widespread sense that some major aspects of the biological sciences are yet to be discovered, and they certainly mm. don't want to hear carping from the theological sidelines. And I think that is a manifestation of their pride. In some sense, pride is good. In some sense, pride is terribly destructive. But I don't think that they themselves feel their own religion is being attacked. Uh, I think their credibility as natural philosophers is being attacked. Uh, and but they're you're coming from right. You're not coming from it from a traditionally religious point of view or theological point of view. You're asking questions, as you point out, from a secular point of view, you just have sure. questions about 
how can this how can this work? It doesn't seem to work, and you're not your theory's so vague, and and they get indignant about that. Why? Why do they get indignant with you? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think it's okay. A certain amount of vitriol, a certain amount of indignation, a certain amount of mm -hmm. bad temper, a certain amount of name calling. Uh, that's part of the greater circus of life, isn't it? Well, it is. The question is, it, all, it makes me think that, that they prote protest too much. It's not a dispassionate view of the evidence, it seems. No, and but then neither is mine. people names. What's that? Mine isn't dispassionate either. No, I understand that. But nobody's going to call you a liar for Jesus because you're not, you're not advocating necessarily the Christian worldview. But they'll call Steve Meyer that, that he's lying for Jesus when he's putting forth evidence from science, not the Bible. Well, they'll, they'll call me other names, a rich repository of names, but um, I think that's okay. It, it, it shouldn't be a source of, uh, of grievance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're absolutely right. When the biologists pass a certain point close to apoplexy, I think everybody else says, you know, these guys are protesting a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not the way physicists well, react. You can say, okay. uh, I think the standard model of physics is screwy, and the physicist won't say, uh, as the biologists would say, well, you're lying for Jesus. They'll just say, you're wrong. Well, I'm not paying attention to mm -hmm. that. Well, Dr. Belinsky, it's been a pleasure having you on. I'm sorry this hour has gone so quickly, this 47 minutes. but I got um, another hour. We don't have to stop. Yeah. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground. His book, The Devil's Delusion, you need to get. Also, his newer book, uh, human nature you need to get as well. These are evergreen books, ladies and gentlemen. Trust me, evergreen. You will enjoy them. Dr. David Berlinski, thank you so much. Also, friends, check out our website, crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. we got a new one starting in two weeks. You want to be a part of, check it out. See you here next week. God bless.